This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Mysteries of God, the rock on which I stand, the truth to which I cling, His love that knows no bounds, He showers us with grace, withholding no good thing. When I stumble and my faith is small, I will call your name, great God who saves. I would have despaired if I had not believed that you would come to me. Great God who saves in my darkest hour. Your mercy and your power are reaching out to me. Great God who saves. Oh, the mystery of God who holds all space and time, yet knows my every need. The vastness of your power strength you give the weak, I soar on eagles' wings. When I stumble and my faith is small, I will call your name, great God who saves. I would have despaired if I had not believed that you would come to me. Great God who saves in my darkest hour, your mercy and your power are reaching out to me. Great God who saves in my pain and in my need, you heard me calling out your name when I was could not see. You stepped in and saved a wretch like me. You saved a wretch like me. And I would have despaired if I had not believed that you would come to me. Great God who saves in my darkest hour, your mercy and your power are reaching out to me, great God who saves, I would have despaired if I had not believed that you would come to me, great God who saves, in my darkest hour, your mercy and your power are reaching out to me, great God who saves. God who saves, great God who saves.
great God who saves. If you would open your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of First Samuel, chapter seventeen. We begin a new series today called David. Now, as I was preparing for this series, I I felt like David wasn't a very catchy name for a sermon series, so I went to some really smart and creative people and asked them for ideas, but uh, they didn't act very smart and didn't come up with anything that I thought was better. And so for lack of an attention-grabbing title, our sermon series will just be called David. Now, here's what we're going to do. We could literally be in this series for months and months and months, but we're not. We're going to be very selective and and pick out just a handful of important events from David's life that intersect with our lives. Um, This isn't going to be just kind of a, a series where we retell some of the cool stories about David, but rather we're going to look at some events that, that cross over into our lives. Uh, Now, some of those, uh, some of our lessons will be from well-known stories, such as today's story. Next Sunday, we're going to cover what I call a very bizarre story in the life of David. And probably many of you will not know about this. Uh, but, But as we study David, we're going to try to make this very, very practical. And as always, our goal is for us to become better followers of Jesus Christ. Now, before we begin, I want to Welcome for the first time our, our Nevada audience through KNEM and KNMO Radio. They, they called us, invited us to become part of their family, and so we're looking forward to them joining KSM and uh, our spending time with you on Sunday mornings. The account of David begins around the 11th century B.C., and this was a period of time when warfare was extremely violent. In fact, It's almost impossible for us to wrap our minds around the brutality involved in combat. Hollywood has helped us a little bit through movies such as Braveheart and Gladiator and maybe some others, but but still it's impossible for us to truly comprehend the horrific nature of warfare in yesteryear. And yes, today, warfare is is horrible as well. Warfare is always horrible, but, but today the killing is mainly done at a distance. We send in Tomahawk cruise missiles from a thousand miles away, or, or, or we drop GPS-guided smart bombs from 30,000 feet in the air. But, but in David's day, you saw warfare not from a computer screen. You saw warfare over the edge of your shield. You killed at arm's length. You looked into the eyes of your opponent. You smell their breath. You knew if they had been drinking alcohol. You were close enough to see the fear in their eyes. And and if their eyes didn't show fear, then that brought fear into your eyes because that meant you were gazing into the eyes of a veteran warrior. And unless you too were a veteran of the shield, the odds of your walking away were very, very low. And only after the battle ended and, and the adrenaline subsided, did you know if you were wounded? Because you were almost always covered with blood. 
And so you would have to try to figure out if it was your blood or the blood of your opponent. And if the blood were yours and you were fortunate enough to be able to stop the bleeding, the chances were high that you would still die from some, from some sort of infection. In fact, in ancient times, men often fought wearing just a thin outside tunic because although they didn't understand the concept of germs and infection, they did understand that, that, that if a puncture wound took part of your clothing into your arm or, or into your leg, then you were almost always guaranteed to lose your leg or your arm or more than likely your life. And if you did lose your life before anyone could come and recover your body and, and give you a proper burial, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field would be there to prey upon your flesh. Isn't that like the most uplifting introduction you've ever heard to a sermon? Welcome to the Church of God Holiness where it's always positive and encouraging. But that was the reality during this time period when David came onto the scene. Life was brutal. So with that as our introduction, let's begin our journey into the life of David. First Samuel chapter 17, we'll pick up our reading with verse 1, and we'll be reading from the New International Version. Now the Philistines, and, and by the way, there are different ways to say Philistines. Some people say Philistines, some people say Philistines, some people say Philistines, and we'll, we'll probably just say it different ways here to keep everybody on their toes. The Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at some, some places here that are difficult to pronounce, but at Ephes Damon between Soko and Ezekah, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. You know the story well. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Now, now, just try to get that in your mind because this is important. I'm about five feet, ten inches tall. Goliath was over nine feet tall. Verse 5, he had a bronze helmet on his head and, and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which would have been about 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Now, this was not a throwing javelin, but this was a killing, or I guess we could call it a, a, a stabbing spear. It was probably about six feet long, and on the end, the iron point weighed about 15 pounds. It goes on and says his shield bearer went ahead of him. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So needless to say, Israel was in dire straits. They needed a champion. They needed someone that was big and bad and brave that would be able to go up against this seemingly invincible nine-foot giant. 
Now understand that this was not just a matter of potentially losing a battle and, and kind of being embarrassed and humiliated. Well, we got beat. But, but a loss here to Goliath would mean that the country of Israel would become slaves of the Philistines. So the potential consequences of losing this battle to Goliath, the, the potential consequences were extremely great. Now in a situation like this, when looking for a warrior to fight an opponent like Goliath, they would typically look to their king because a king many times in those days had become king because of his military exploits. But Israel also looked to their king for another reason. Their king, King Saul, happened to be one of the tallest men in Israel. Now he's probably not nine feet tall, but early in scripture it gives the two major reasons, and I found this very interesting, two major reasons that the King Saul was chosen as king. Number one, it says, because he was a very handsome man. And so a country always wanted to be proud of their king, and so they thought good looks would help. And I was just thinking about that this week, and I realized that you, that was one of the reasons you chose me as your pastor, because of my amazing looks here. But number two, because it's certainly not number two, the Bible says that Saul was also head and shoulders taller than everybody else. So again, it doesn't say how tall, but, but Saul was a big man. But anyway, when this giant named Goliath <clears throat> sauntered out, overlooking the valley of Elah that divided the two sides. When he issued a challenge, the nation of Israel immediately thought of their biggest. And since we're in Cedar County, I can just say baddest guy, which happened to be their king. And so they placed their hope in their king. And this is where this Old Testament story begins to intersect our lives. Because here's what's true of you, and, and here's what's true of me. We also have a tendency to place our hope in people, or in systems, or in organizations. You know, we, hope, uh, we, we place our hope in political parties, and, and we place our hope in, in presidents. We place our hope in the military. And we at times even have a tendency to place our hope in the local church, or, or even in the pastor. But, but here's what typically happens. When that person or that organization that we place our hope in disappoints us, oftentimes that hope turns to disdain. And our attitude becomes skeptical or even resentful towards the organization or that person. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of times when people will come to church, they'll be so excited, but, they, but then they're disappointed in the church and, and they become skeptical. And that's true not only of, of churches, but it's true of government. Uh, you know, for example, that's why you and I have the potential to resent our parents more than anybody else. Because as we grew up, our hope was in them. You know, as little kids, toddlers, just a few years old, a couple years old, our parents were our heroes. They were our hope. You know, you never placed much hope in that couple living across the street, did you? You placed your hope in your parents. But, but when you became teenagers and, and your parents disappointed you and didn't let you do what you wanted to do, what happened? You got mad and became rude to the couple across the street? No. You were still polite to them. You were rude to your parents. And from the perspective of parents, I mean, all of us as parents, we've had people come up to us and they will say, oh, your son is such a gentleman or your daughter you know, she is such a, 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 a sweetheart, and, and you've got such wonderful kids, and, and you've got to ask what the kids' names are, because it doesn't sound like your kids. But again, that's human nature. 
Wherever we place our hope is where our trust is. And if something happens to where that person disappoints us, then many times it turns to disdain and resentment. So the country of Israel had placed their hope in their king, but, but the problem was that their king, King Saul, had basically gone missing. And when Goliath issued the challenge for the duel, and instead of King Saul coming forward and saying, well, I've got this situation, I'll take care of this punk, King Saul basically disappeared because he, was, he knew he was no match for this nine-foot giant. Well, with each day that, that King Saul was missing, his credibility began to slip, which meant that since Saul was the bravest and the biggest and the baddest that Israel had, it meant that any chance that Israel might have of defeating this giant was pretty much gone. And, and that caused the army of Israel to fall into a sense of doom and, and gloom and despair. Now, the stalemate between the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines really brings to light the fact that God never wanted Israel to have a king anyway. God wanted Israel to look to him as king. In fact, about 400 years before this event, God had established Israel as a theocracy, which means a God rule. And at this time, Israel was ruled by judges, and, and they would administer the law according to God's will and help the people understand that God was their king. And this is amazing. This is so fascinating because this right here, this form of government, this system of government put Israel far ahead of every other country in the world. This system of government helped them avoid the many pitfalls of an earthly kingdom. But as the Israelites looked around, they saw that every other country had a king. And they decided that they wanted to be like everybody else. And this is not what this lesson is about, but this is, this is very, very dangerous. Be careful thinking that you need to be like everybody else. Sometimes it's okay to be weird in a good way. Sometimes it's okay to understand that I don't need to be like everybody else. But Israel wanted to be like everybody else, and so they went to the leading authority who was a prophet named Samuel, and, and of course this was a few years before the incident with Goliath. The elders went to Samuel, and, and Samuel had become elderly and, and knew he didn't have much time left on earth, and so he had appointed his sons to be his replacement. But the problem was this, whereas Samuel was a good and a, and a godly man, his sons were not. They did not follow the ways of the Lord. They, they pursued dishonest gain. They, they accepted bribes. They perverted justice. They ruled in favor of whoever had the most money. So the elders of Israel came to Samuel, and in Samuel chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, it says, You are old. That's what they said to him. That's quite a thing to say to your leader. You are old. But that's not all they said to him. They said, You're old, not only old, but your sons are not like you, Samuel. They don't have a heart for God. They're not following your ways, nor God's ways. And so, Samuel, we ask that, that you would appoint a king to rule over us because all of the cool nations have a king. And so it's time for us to catch up with everybody else and have a king. But here's what they had forgotten. God had established Israel for a very, very specific purpose, and, and the purpose went way beyond just the country of Israel. Many, many years before, God had made a promise to a man we've all heard of. His name was Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless not just you and not just your family and not just the nation of Israel, 
but that there will be one that will come from you through which the entire world will be blessed. Of course, pointing ahead to Jesus. And so God did not want Israel to be like the other nations with a king that would become corrupt. He wanted to be their king. So that in their success and in their wealth, the, the, the surrounding nations would say, wait, wait a minute, you don't have a king, so the success of your nation must not point back to your king. Why, why is it? It must be your God. And so who is your God? Who, who is your God that protects your borders? And, and who is your God that causes the crops to grow? Who is your God that causes your people to be blessed with long lives? Who is this God that you serve? But they still said to Samuel, give us a king. And this hurt Samuel because they felt that was a reflection of his leadership. So he went to God and began to pray. And here's what God told him. He said, Samuel, don't be upset. These people are not rejecting you. They're rejecting me because I established Israel in such a way that I would be their king. And so God said, Samuel, this whole idea of having a king is not a good idea, but I will allow it. Which again, is, this is not what our lesson is about, but be very careful about demanding your way with God. That's why it's so important for us to pray, God, according to your will. Because sometimes God allows things that are not best for us simply because of our persistence. But he said, Samuel, before I give them a king, let people know that this will not end well. And here, because here's what a king will do. He will tax them. He will take a percentage of their crops. He will take a percentage of their flocks. He will draft you know, their, their sons into the army. He will force their daughters to serve him in the palace. He will claim the best land for himself. So God said, make sure they understand the fine print. But in spite of all the warnings, the elders insisted, we want a king. So God gave them a king. And Saul, the handsome man, the man head and shoulders above everybody else, became their king. Well, this king that all of Israel had placed their hope in to take on this giant called Goliath was terrified which in turn caused all of Israel to become terrified. Enter a 15-year-old boy named David, who in today's world would have just gotten his driver's permit. And he shows up with a care package for his brothers who were part of Israel's army. And like any curious young man, any curious teenager, I know I would have been there, but he's heard about this nine-foot-tall giant and and he wants to see him. So he made his way to a place where he could not only see Goliath, but, but he could hear him as he came out to taunt the army of Israel. Well, what was David's reaction? Like the rest of the army of Israel, he was very disturbed. But what I want to bring out is that David was not disturbed in the sense of being terrified like everybody else. Rather, David was disturbed because he was offended. He was flat out offended he couldn't believe what he was hearing. And listen to what he says in verse 26. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and, and catches, removes this disgrace from Israel? And then listen to this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, without getting inappropriate here, I want to talk about that statement of uncircumcised Philistine. That statement that David made brought so much clarity to this situation. 
It seems as if no one else had understood it. When David said this man was an uncircumcised Philistine, he was saying, Goliath is outside the covenant of God. There was a God that, that there was a covenant that God had established, and, and he was saying, you know what? Goliath is outside the protection of this covenant. And David says, who does he think he is to defy the armies of the living God? And, and what he's doing isn't just some harmless trash talk. It's not just some harmless rhetoric. He said, this is a serious undermining of God Almighty. Well, word filters back to King Saul that someone was volunteering to go fight this giant. And so King Saul calls in this person. And when young David walks in, I can imagine that Saul immediately starts rolling his eyes and and shaking his head. I mean, this is embarrassing. David was a kid. He had no experience as a soldier. He had no scars, no wounds, nothing to indicate that he had ever held a spear or a shield He was just a little kid, just a shepherd. Well, Saul talks down to David and and says, Boy, I can't let you do this. I mean, this would be suicide for you. You you would get crushed. But what he was really saying was, you know what? The worst part of that, it's okay if you get crushed. But the worst part of that would mean that we would then be slaves to the Philistines the rest of our lives. (laughs) Saul says, I can't let you do it, boy. But David began to plead his case. He said, wait, 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 King King Saul, let me tell you something. Yeah, I, I know I'm just a shepherd. And no, I don't have any military experience. And you're right, I don't even own a gun. I don't have any weapons. I mean, I don't have a shield. I'm not the typical warrior. But but David said, and I'm paraphrasing 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, verses 34 to 37. He he said, O king, one day while I was shepherding my father's sheep, a lion came and took one of the sheep. And instead of doing what most shepherds would do, which would have been just to try to protect the rest of the flock and then then go home that evening and say, Dad, you know, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. And and, and the bad news is that a lion came, and I'm sorry, we lost one of our sheep, but the good news is that I saved the rest. <laughs> David said, oh, king, I decided that lion wasn't even going to get that one sheep. And so I went after the lion, and I killed the lion, and I saved that little sheep. And then not too long after that, a bear came and tried the same thing. But again, I went after the bear, and I, I, took, I took the lamb from that bear, and I killed the bear. And King Saul lived forever. But your servant that killed both the lion and the bear will do the same to this uncircumcised Philistine that is not under God's covenant, not because I have military experience, not because I have advanced weapons, but because he has defied the armies of the living God and the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and who rescued me from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Do you see, and this is what I want you to get, there is absolutely no confusion for David. He has extraordinary clarity. He realizes that an enemy of God's people was an enemy of God. And Goliath wasn't simply trash-talking and and, and just defying the army. Goliath was defying God. And so he said, King Saul, 
let me do what no man in your army is willing to do. And, and, and no disrespect to you, king, but even what you are unwilling to do. Well, the interesting thing is that later David would become king and we would have the privilege of getting inside of David's mind through the Psalms that he wrote. And, you know, David didn't write all of the Psalms, but he wrote a, a good number of them. And we can kind of get into his emotions and, and what he was really thinking just beyond his actions. And paraphrasing the words in Psalm 25 too, here's what David said. He said, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. That's what David was thinking. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. So if you would have asked David, as you go to battle, what's your strength? Is it, is it your ability? Is it your experience? Is it, is it your weapons? He would say, no, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. And that was the posture that God not only wanted for David, but it was the posture that God desired, desired for the entire nation. And furthermore, are you listening? It's the posture that God desires for us. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. So King Saul finally reluctantly says, okay, David, have it your way. Go get him. And may the Lord go with you. And 15-year-old David... <laughs> who is so incredibly humble, but yet so incredibly confident in his Lord, he makes his way down to the Valley of Elah. And we can only imagine the reaction on both sides. On the Philistine side, I, I imagine they were laughing and high-fiving and, and saying, you've got to be kidding. Is this a joke? A young boy who has no weapons, no armor, and no clue? But then can you imagine on the side of Israel how horrified they had to be seeing this young teenager? And they probably said, there goes our future. We're destined to be slaves the rest of our lives because this kid is going to be crushed. You know the story, but it's so good. Could, would you just allow me to read it from Scripture? Verse 41, meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over, saw he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. In other words, he hated him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come up, with, come up me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Listen, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. And I don't know if this was a little bit of trash talking, but it came true. <laughs> said, I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and it will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, 
he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Verse 50, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. What an incredible victory. Well, then the Philistines made a tragic decision. Remember, the agreement was that whoever lost the duel would be slaves to the other army, but the Philistines, they didn't keep their part. They said, no, we're not going to surrender. So they took off running. Bad mistake. The army of Israel rejuvenated because of David's victory over Goliath. They took off after the Philistines and and, and it, the slaughter lasted all day. And the Bible says the dead were strewn all the way from Gath to Ekron. And I looked that up. That's about 10 miles. So picture dead strewn for a 10-mile distance. And that day, God used a young boy to do something that King Saul failed to do. Because David saw something that King Saul could not see. He saw that when you put your trust in God, the battle becomes the Lord's. Remember what David wrote? In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. And when people put their trust in God, they have amazing clarity. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Could we all just say this out loud on the count of three? One, two, three. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Let's get a little bit of enthusiasm. One, two, three. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. One more time. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Imagine waking up tomorrow and making that declaration before you even get out of bed. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Imagine on your way to work, deciding, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Imagine in the midst of your greatest success, when all eyes are on you, and you're the smartest person in the room, but humbly whispering under your breath, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Imagine when you feel like you're the least smart person in the room. But just saying in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Imagine those moments when you're facing Goliath and it looks like he will in fact take you down, whispering under your breath, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Imagine in those moments when the finances aren't there, but just saying in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Imagine in those moments when your world caves in because of bad news from the doctor, but still saying, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's how David went from a humble shepherd to a giant slayer. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. And as you leave here today, some of you will face giants this week. This statement will give you clarity. It'll help you realize that the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. 
And again, you can say with confidence, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. Let's pray together. God, I know that there are some people that probably need to take heed. Lord, I think I'm one of them because I tend to try to handle things myself. Lord, I try to create systems and programs here at this church and in my own life have principles that will kind of cause everything to work out. But Lord, uh, help us to understand that all of our planning, everything that we work so hard to accomplish, Lord, there there are those times when things fall apart. And so, Lord, rather than putting our trust in people that will disappoint us, Lord, rather than putting our trust in the church or in the pastor, or I pray that our trust would be in Jesus. And God, as things come to us this week, as things overwhelm us, I pray that we would just say with David, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. And God, I pray that this week would be lived with that clarity, that clarity that you are the controlling factor in life. And God, I pray that right now we would just submit to you. Lord, that we would quit trying to be what our society wants us to be, and that's independent. Lord, that we would be dependent on you. And so, Father, as we move out of here today, as we move on with the, with the rest of our day, give us that clarity that we'll see that our battles are not our battles, but they're of the Lord. God, thank you for David and his life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we move on into his life further this next week, as we look at a bizarre bizarre story. God, I pray that we would learn some lessons and we just want to be better followers of Jesus. Thank you for meeting with us today. We love you. And we ask this in the strong, the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, all of God's people said, amen and amen. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.